we're finding that more and more borrowers now are becoming more maybe realistic about vacancy, TIs, free rent, concessions, lease up velocity, the types of tenants they need to go after, pre-building space. Uh, maybe they're not holding out for that last dollar or $5 or $10 anymore. Cracks in the market certainly seem to be emerging. In the last few weeks, we've seen some very well-known developers hand back a building in Long Island City. We've seen major firms like Venado and Boston Properties writing down their building values. The special servicing rate is up, and something like $13 billion worth of office loans are set to mature in Manhattan this year. The question is, is a wave of distress finally hitting? I'm Miriam Hall. On this episode of BizNow Reports, Samir Tejpol, He's a managing director at Square Mile. He runs credit capital markets and oversees a large part of the firm's borrowing business. We're mulling that question of distress in our conversation, and Samir talks over where Square Mile sees the big opportunities and how the company is approaching modifications with their borrowers and why they expect to be patient, depending on the circumstances. He's also talking about why he thinks the location of an office asset is more important than its age or its class. I think you really got to take a step back and think about where we've been, where we're going. So, you know, first quarter of 2020, we, and this is pre-COVID, we're sitting in a position where we've had maybe 10 years of growth with no sort of hiccups in the road from the GFC. And then you have a, what I would describe as more of a social event uh, rather than a financial event in, in COVID, really shutting things down. And I think we we're all collectively on the same page in wanting to work through what those challenges presented us. So as a lender or a borrower, we were willing to give time to those folks who had a challenge. You know, folks who may have had maturities or had extensions, those got pushed out. Lenders were very accommodating about what the situation was with COVID, people not being in the office, not being able to interact. And I think everybody benefited from time. 2021 presents itself. People are back interacting. Clearly the Fed has provided a lot of stimulus with the rates being at zero. And a lot of folks benefited from that time. And you look at real estate, borrowers benefited from that time. They could refinance, they could sell, recap, et cetera, et cetera. And lenders also participated in all that activity. 2021 was the biggest investment sales year in the last 20 years. Fast forward to 2023, a lot of the modifications and extensions that borrowers benefited from and lenders were willing to provide uh, are no longer available. And the reason is because now we're maybe four, five, six, seven, eight years into a loan that should have been a short-term bridge to stabilization. And borrowers have no longer have time and lenders no longer have time to extend or modify. So we're almost at an impasse and that's presenting what you're observing, which is, is it all coming to a head? My gut tells me we will find more time. Borrowers will find more time and lenders will find more time because um, real estate is a timing business and we recognize that right now what people need is more runway to execute their business plan, potentially become, find more capital to invest or deploy, um, and also maybe execute a business plan that in this environment with leasing being so slow, maybe just needs the next upswing to get through it. So. Looking at some of the buildings that have debts maturing this year, like these are marquee properties, like the Helmsley building, 600 and something million maturing this year. Um, one of the NATO's buildings on Park Ave, 
1.1 billion. Sure. I mean, well, how do you think the story is going to play out for these big, famous assets? I think location will continue to overcome maybe the shortfalls of the asset class. So you think about the Helmsley building or some assets on Park Avenue, there's still rents being executed on Park Avenue, whether it's a 5,000 square foot lease or 150,000 square foot lease at rents that are top of market or high watermark. So um, I don't think that that marketplace, and there's certainly many pockets in New York City that will benefit and continue to benefit despite them being office. What those buildings may not have the benefit of, though, is a sponsor that can deploy capital, right? I, call, I use this word conviction a lot. Is the borrower have conviction in their asset? And the lenders will afford them more time if they're willing to deploy capital in their building, again, to find them more time. That's the crux, though. And as a lender who writes business plan loans, um, I'm incentivized to help clients. We want them to be successful. If they need more time, we're willing to provide it. But we're also not in the business of letting borrowers just let assets languish. So they have to bring money to the table. Or we have to find a creative solution where they can bring money to the table in the future. Maybe it's for creative work. So I think location, location, location is important. Other parts of the city where there's not that sort of um, destination feel, um, they are going to struggle. It's interesting you say location because everyone's talking about age of buildings. It's more about location for you? I would say it's location. Um, many of the older product office assets on Park Avenue, whether it's north or south of Grand Central, have thing, like, the intrinsic quality that you cannot replace, right? So if you're someone who lives in the suburbs of Long Island, being proximate to Grand Central is extraordinarily important. And when companies or corporations or individuals want to bring their businesses to the city or move their businesses in the city, there's a chair for every um, expression. Uh, so they may not be able to afford a one Vanderbilt, but they certainly can afford that Class B building. And they're really thinking, I think, first and foremost, in this environment, where's the location? Yeah, I think people have become very obsessed with like how the office feels. People forget like how much time means to people. Sure. Like if you can quickly get to work and quickly get home, you can put up with a lot. I'm in my early 30s. I live in the west side of New York City. I value proximity from my location to my workplace. So I want to be proximate to and, and um, in, a, in a location for office where I can get to many parts of the city very quickly. I would have a lot different feeling about being an employee of that company if it was in a location that was far inferior, where I couldn't get to other parts, certain parts of the city. I couldn't interact with people. I couldn't get home on time. Um, it's the most important thing to me, rather than what are the, actually the amenities in the building. And I, maybe I speak for a, maybe a smaller group or maybe a lot of people that the amenities in the building are wonderful, right? Group space, um, sunlight and air, uh, gyms, food, beverage, et cetera, et cetera. But I would rather be in an excellent location that's approximate to getting to wherever I need to be rather than being in a building that has like, it's all tricked out with all the best and brightest equipment and technology. So maybe that played out a little bit with say what we've just seen in the last week, which is Bentel Green Oak and related fund management having to um, reach an arrangement mm -hmm. uh, deed with the in, yeah with the lender yeah, because sure. they kind of had this theory that if they made this super nice warehouse space in Long Island City, people would come and you know maybe they didn't. It, it, I've read it's basically empty that building. Yeah, I mean 
That's a great example we're talking about, yeah. right? Those are tremendous sponsors. We think very highly of them. They invested a lot of capital in an asset that looks amazing, um, but no amount of amenities, no amount of capital was gonna get that building leased up, at least in this environment that they're in, mm -hmm. right? So they're also fiduciaries and they're institutional, and they're platinum, and they're gonna make a decision for themselves and their investors and saying, I can no longer put any more money into this, this asset, and now it's time to have a conversation with the lender about an orderly shifting of control because as I said, they don't want the asset to languish. They don't want to burn a relationship with their lender. And now it's the lender's kind of purview on how they want to either step in, deploy capital, protect, and or potentially, you know, maybe find a recap partner. Take me inside some of those conversations as much as you can about modifications. You said that you're willing to like give a little if they're going to give a little. Sure. What are, what are those chats like? As a lender, first thing we like to do or we need to do is really assess um, where are we today? Cash flow, rent roll, rollover. Um, where are they in the business plan if they're in the middle of a CapEx project? And then where are we going? Right? Like we're, I'm a transitional bridge lender or a construction lender. Um, we have a stabilized business too, but really I'm projecting future cash flows. So I underwrite the asset today and then I look forward the next two, four, five, six years. What are the capital needs in order for us to be in a position where the asset's stabilized? So that's the first step. And we take a sober view of where cap rates are, vacancy factors, concessions, et cetera. And then with that analysis internally, it's almost like we underwrite an equity mentality because we are equity investors first and foremost. Um, then we can have a proactive dialogue with the client about here's where we see a deficiency or a road by, uh, here's the roadmap. Let's work collaboratively and this is what we think we, you need to be participating in, whether it's capital or CapEx or um, execution, leasing, management, et cetera. We want to approach it that way because it is a partnership and again, I want the borrower to succeed. I didn't write them this loan to be in a position where I am taking back the asset. Um, and then you have the dynamism that comes in. The borrower may be in a lot different position from a capital perspective or their agenda might be a lot different than what, the way I, under, I underwrote the deal. Um, I, we're finding that more and more borrowers now are becoming more maybe realistic about vacancy, TIs, free rent, concessions, lease up velocity, the types of tenants they need to go after, pre-building space. Uh, maybe they're not holding out for that last dollar or five dollars or ten dollars anymore. So we want it to be collaborative. That's the right way we think we should be approaching our clients and um, it's served us well so far. And then there's certain cases where borrowers, like as I mentioned, you, you referenced a case in New York where those sponsors decided to give back an asset. They're not going to put dollars that are critical today behind a business plan they don't necessarily think is supportive or it requires more capital. What about though, I mean, the conversation is often about like lenders don't want these buildings obviously, cause like what are they gonna do any better than the sponsor? Mm -hmm. And you know, the way that we often think about it is like a kind of an adversarial relationship mm -hmm. where the lender's like, oh, you know, I gotta take this back. What if it's a situation where the borrower wants, like they're voluntarily handing back this building and lenders don't want them. What's going to happen there? We're hearing of things like that, actually, yeah. where uh, the borrower basically puts their hands up in the air and says, hey, it's, it's your turn. It's like a standoff. Right? It is almost like a standoff. And, you know, I had this conversation last night with some, with some folks, and uh, 
that impasse is quite interesting. You really learn a lot about how people behave in these types of environments, which I think is exciting, but also it's kind of scary because the lender may say, we don't want it. Then the borrower's perspective is, okay, well, I'm not paying you debt service. Well, that doesn't work, right? Like I, my investors are requiring a return. Are we going to defer those costs? Are you gonna even, and this is me speaking to my borrower, where I'm in a position where I don't want to hypothetically take the asset you're like, what do you want with that building? Nothing. Well, again, it comes back down to real estate has to be kept up to date and managed and taken care of and you know, interiors, exteriors, everything. You don't want the asset to languish. That's the, probably the worst case situation. That's probably what I'm most concerned about when you think about like major cities like New York where a lot of the tax revenue comes from real estate. When you have an impasse where borrowers don't want to be in it, the lenders don't want to be in it, that's a bad outcome. Is that happening yet? I think um, there are conversations happening. Have you had any of those conversations? We have not had those conversations. Do you expect to have some of those buildings? No, we were fully appreciative of an understanding that we need to be stepping into, should borrowers not be able to perform, assets that we underwrote, and we're going to do right by the assets. And we're not gonna be forced sellers. I think that's another mistake maybe people think or perception people have is the easiest path is to just fire sale it and just get out of it. Well, again, real estate is all timing oriented, timing and leverage. And in this environment today, debt is more expensive and equity is more expensive, right? So people are, are gonna be looking for a deal or a bargain and they're not gonna be offering you what, maybe if you had just held on to it two, three, four, five years from now, what you could have earned. So again, what benefits us in our platform is we're equity mentality focused. That's why we think we're a good counterparty to our clients. We think and strategize the way that they would want to in the equity. And we're gonna take the long view that New York and other major cities are gonna re rebound. And um, we're going to do right by what we think the most reasonable business plan is at that point in time. Because there are a lot of people who are hoping for those fire sales, right? Who are well capitalized, yes. who are hoping that you would say oh, there's gonna be a bunch of fire sales. Yeah. And you don't think that's gonna happen? Because if, if you're talking like this, lots of lenders will be talking like that. Well, not all lenders are created equal. I think one lesson I always was told as I came up in this industry is um, maybe the core capital, whether it's banks, life codes, et cetera, they're not necessarily good owners of real estate. And a lot of people maybe, maybe made mistakes or fired sold assets in the GFC because they just maybe they overspent, underspent, didn't know what they were doing, they just wanted to get it off their books, financial challenges beyond just the real estate groups at these institutions. Um, and then there was a whole swath of folks who held on to real estate through the GFC or bought real estate at that point in time at discounts and they quickly saw the rebound happen between 2011 and 2015 and they benefited tremendously. I have no doubt that we're gonna see an upturn in the next few years. Things will not be what they are today. This too shall pass. And our perspective is we're going to hold on. We're going to understand what we need to accomplish. Maybe our business plan is different than the prior borrower, but we're not going to be in a position where we need to be a forced seller. Other lenders, maybe those who are less capitalized or undercapitalized or may not have the equity expertise we do, I think you will see them look to sell assets. And then you talk about are we selling the good with the bad, just the bad, just the good, you know. Then there's maybe a little bit more... Um, how do you describe it the right way? It would be uh, massaging the pool to make it look a little bit better. I've heard you say that some 
office buildings are devalued by 50%. Do you think we're going to start seeing some large-scale teardowns, some large-scale conversions? So I think first and foremost, um, that comment is not a holistic comment. You're talking about certain buildings. Yeah, certain buildings, you know, that maybe are deficient. Right, like a building that's worth 50% less, half vacant. Who, the lender doesn't want it, the owner doesn't want it. Yeah, I, I mean, what's going to happen to it? Highest and best use is there's some sort of incentive program created in these local municipalities that incentivize conversion um, or maybe for a sponsor to maybe continue to maintain its existing use, but with a, you know, some sort of carrot attached to it, tax abatement or... Right, like what pilot. the city's talking about. Yeah. Do you think that's going to have to happen at some point? I think from a tax revenue perspective, the city is incentivized to help fill vacancy. Yeah, because an empty office building is far less... Empty hotels, yeah. shuttered hotels, office buildings, retail. I mean, you can make this comment about a lot of asset classes outside of just office in New York or in any major marketplace, even San Francisco, uh, Chicago, etc. Um, there has to be an incentive program built in. The conversion conversation is an interesting one, but again, you're not, not all buildings are created equal. Sunlight and air is critical when you're converting to residential, right? What is the floor spacing? What is the column spacing? What is the ceiling heights? Where, where are your mechanicals? Like these are things that great on paper, you can sketch out what you think costs will be, but until you actually own the building, get inside and start tearing things apart, you don't maybe not recognize what it's actually going to cost. So um, I like the idea, we like the idea, we'd love to participate in the idea. I think that public-private partnership is needed and there's a lot more refinement that's going to go into what it takes to convert old office. Quite a while ago I had Rick Clark on from um, Brookfield yeah. and he was saying that there are buildings in the city that have to come down. And this was, this was back in kind of a recent heyday. <laughs> Yeah, highest and best use may not be those existing office buildings. It might be land. Yeah, absolutely. Public space. It could be housing. It could be for sale condo, affordable. Um, could be more schools. Could be more hospitality. I think for anybody who's been trying to book a hotel in the city for the last six months, Crazy. it's quite expensive. Yeah. There's a lot of supply that's come offline, and um, one really critical aspect is um, real estate is so critical to New York City in every certain asset class we talk about. And we want real estate to succeed. I think everybody in New York should want real estate, developers, investors, public-private partnerships to succeed because the city will benefit of a robust real estate environment. You know, a lot of what the new projects have come online, whether it's the west side, the east side, south side, Brooklyn, Bronx, uh, you're changing cityscapes and you're changing the way people live. Changes are good, right? If there's a way we can figure out how to take great locations with outdated asset classes and improve our society through a partnership, that's a win-win. It's going to take time. Square Mile last year made a loan to um, A&E for the purchase of 160 Riverside from Equity Residential. Sure. Um, and when I spoke to Michael Abapur about it, he said that you know a few months earlier that would have been a bank loan. Yeah, absolutely. Is that space becoming more competitive for alternative lenders, do you think? We love that space. Mm. This is a tremendous opportunity. And Lab's a really big supporter of us. And obviously, he's our portfolio manager, along with Jeff Fastoff. And uh, we found that there was a great opportunity for us to step into what we thought were bank loans. I think that's what he was trying yeah. to describe. We've done quite a bit of that. Because the banks are like, no thanks. Yeah, when you think about bank balance sheets, banks' balance sheets have ballooned. Mm. 
because they're whether it's the revolvers or their loans aren't paying off or for not one just real estate yeah not just real estate it's really every asset class or every business unit so what we're seeing now is we can come into and provide transitional leverage or loans to clients that otherwise would have been serviced by the money center banks or the life insurance companies and when we think about it it's that's the, that's the tremendous opportunity for us going forward in this next year or two. We're gonna go down in leverage, we're gonna be equal to or better structure, and we think that we're gonna be writing loans that our investors will really enjoy being a part of, our investment committee will really be thoughtful about like approving and presenting, and um, our team is motivated because we're providing we're providing what we think is accretive capital to a whole new borrower base that we may have not had exposure to because banks dominated. Where else would you say the big opportunities are? For like, for example, there's been a big construction loan that you've given to KKR, um, and a big a facility, a f- rather a construction facility, a, a loan on a life science building in uh, California. So where else are you? Where else are you looking? So we put our equity hats on, mm-hmm. and. When you look back over the last five years and what have we grown into, obviously we are a part of a tremendous partnership with Hackman Capital um, in the studio space, mm-hmm. uh, both here in North America and overseas. That's you know, really thoughtful about what was going to happen in that asset class and institutionalizing it. We were very, a lot of foresight and thematic in that way. Data centers is another uh, industry oh, okay. we've branched into and we're going to build. And again, we're starting with an equity mentality of we're going to develop the future of data centers with our partners and our clients who are our underlying tenants. Life Sciences is another one that we've been participants on both in debt and equity. You touched on uh, some projects we've done on the West Coast in South San Francisco and San Diego and Boston. We're not going to be able to be the equity on every deal, but if we can participate in what's going to be the newest, best, highest and best use in excellent locations in these markets, and we can help clients, borrowers build them and benefit along the way as a lender, learn potentially, that's a win-win. So we love those three asset classes. And then you've got more down the middle. So you've got industrial, obviously we've done work with KKR along with some other great clients, um, both spec and, and pre-leased and also stabilized. Uh, multifamily I think is the easiest one for most people to gravitate to, whether it doesn't matter if you're an alternative lender or a money center. And then being selective about what other asset classes we lend on. So hospitality is an asset class we like. Really? Yeah, we've lent on hospitality. We're fairly narrow in our approach. I would describe it as you know full service, limited service, flagged hotels in top 50 markets. Um, but you know we will discuss a resort. You know I wouldn't say we're ready to start talking about convention hotels just yet, but um, that's also bridging construction. And then retail and office is very bespoke. So I guess just to sum it up. Mm-hmm. The five asset classes that you thought about historically as the main food groups, we think that that's been supplemented now with potentially maybe two to four new asset classes that we're focusing on. Like content. Content, data centers, life sciences, cold storage, GMP, you know. Potentially What's med- GMP? It's um, actually manufacturing the underlying um, drugs, vaccines, okay. et cetera, uh, that the pharmaceutical companies need their to space. utilize. Their space? Their, is that what you mean? So a lot of what happened, um, it's a great just human case study, a lot of the medicines we need in this country don't get manufactured here, right? So when you talk about onshoring, whether that's in the U.S. or Mexico or Canada, we want to bring that manufacturing back, the actual creation of these drugs and the distribution. And GMP is another offshoot of life science where you're actually bringing on the creation, distribution of those drugs. So that's a whole, that's a semi-subclass of life sciences that 
we are getting smart on, and I know some of the folks we think highly of have already kind of legged into. It's interesting that you talk about the five food groups because I was talking this week, um, I just wrote a story about the kind of the differences and the parallels between the GFC in New York and this moment now. And basically the sense was that 12 years ago, if you had money, you bought anything. It was kind of a smart bet. This time around, it's going to take a lot of strategy and a lot of forward thinking on the behavior of people and how they're going to use real estate. And the, the, the safe havens are no longer the safe havens. Like office and hospitality were safe havens. You could pretty much bet that everyone would go to an office and everyone would take a holiday and stay in a certain place. When you're predicting how people will behave, what are you thinking? So basic human behaviors could be as simple as coming into a community and interacting and seeing somebody having a conversation, doing business, collaborating, mentoring. Where can you do that? You do that in the office, yeah. <laughs> right? And human beings for all, we might love working from home a day or two, but I can tell you in our office, we are much better culture and much better as a group in person mm. because you miss out on a lot of things being at home. And um, we have conviction that office, it, not all office will continue to exist, but for the, I think maybe the majority or a large swath of it will. And um, you're really just taking a view on, like I said, location, tenancy, time, um, what the city is willing to maybe incentivize folks to do. And um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's office is still a safe haven. It's just a certain type of safe haven, certain yeah. type of office. Yeah, yeah, but maybe maybe it's that office valuations. Maybe it's the amount of leverage that's afforded to a lot of these office buildings. Maybe that needs to be recalibrated. We got so infatuated with like short-term gain uh, because the market was just so dynamic, short-term wise, that we forgot. Like, really, we got to think about real estate as a long-term. Thank you so much for coming into our office. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. That's Samir Tejpal. He's a managing director at Square Mile. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.